Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Donna Snyder, a managing director at the $4 billion Kresge Foundation, where she has worked for 10 years as one of three senior team members under Chief Investment Officer Rob Manila. Last summer, institutional investor named Donna the number one ranked most wanted CIO of the future. Our conversation starts with Donna sharing the cross-fertilization of bringing her sell-side trading experience to a foundation, and on the flip side, learning manager selection from her very first data point. We then turn to the inner workings of the foundation investment program from the perspective of a long-tenured senior team member including the nitty-gritty details of the internal investment process, the tricky decision process that goes into adding a manager or taking one out of the portfolio, the management of overlays and internal trades, the different roles of a CIO and senior investment team member, current challenges in venture capital, value investing, hedge funds, and emerging markets, and the politics of getting named a most wanted future chief investment officer. Please enjoy my conversation with Donna Snyder. Donna, it is great to see you. Thank you for having me here. It's great to see you. Let's just start with your background and go from there. Grew up in the Midwest, went to school at Notre Dame for undergrad, chose to study math because I was getting A's in math and let's just say not getting A's in history and English. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my dad asking me 
what are you going to do with a math major? Are you going to be a teacher? I said, I, I don't know, but I know I'm getting good grades, so I'm just going to go with it. Found my way to the actuarial profession. A friend of mine told me, hey, if you take this test, you can get a great internship. It pays well, and it should turn into a real job. I was like, oh, that sounds good. I'm good at taking tests, and so I did it. So I started down the path of being an actuary, spent a summer out in Hartford as an insurance actuary, figured out that was not what I was going to do, <laughs> but found my way to being a pension actuary, which was a great place to start. So I started my career as a pension actuary in Chicago. It was a great blend of client service, consulting, as well as technical knowledge. So I learned a lot about these things that are kind of going away called defined benefit pension plans. Learned all about those. And along the way, we have to take a whole bunch of tests as an actuary. One of the tests covered financial markets. And the major text or the predominant material for the test was Fabozzi's Handbook of Fixed Income Securities. And I had this aha moment of I was not meant to value pensions for the rest of my life. There was these things called mortgage-backed securities and structured finance that seemed wildly more interesting to me. So I did a little bit of digging and figured out that if that was something that I wanted to do, I needed to go back to business school and I needed to change a career and I needed to get out of actuarial work and get into Wall Street. So the path to that was business school. I went to University of Chicago to get my MBA. Thought it was great that they were known as a quant school. And I said, well, I'm pretty good with numbers. I think I'll be okay. So that was great. And thought I wanted to go to Wall Street, but didn't really understand what Wall Street was. So I thought, oh, investment banking. And then as I did a little research on that, I thought, oh, not investment <laughs> banking. Then I spent some time with people who were in sales and trading. And I thought, sales and trading, not sales and trading. I don't know the first thing about how to pitch a stock. And I was lucky that in the interview process came upon an individual who understood what my background was and how the skills were extremely transferable into fixed income derivatives. And he was also a University of Chicago graduate. And so he said, you're going to come work for me. You're going to work on my desk. It's a rotational summer program. But your skill set matches really well with fixed income derivatives and structuring. That was in the early 2000s. So it was a great time to get into structured credit. So I did that. So I started with Merrill Lynch. I spent my summer internship there and then joined full time after business school. So career number two was in structured derivatives. I ended up getting my CFA after business school, all that good stuff. And I had a great time learning then about all the capacities of the bank. And when they found out that my background included work with pensions, that was kind of the evolving LDI trade for the pensions as well. Some of the bankers said, hey, can you help us talk to our client who has a major pension deficit? We'd like to talk about issuing a bond, funding the pension plan, hedging out the interest rate risk. So even though I was in sales and trading, I ended up spending a ton of time with the investment bankers thinking about corporate finance ideas. That led into some other roles and eventually into corporate derivatives in the capital market side of things. And then one summer, a friend called and said, hey, I've given your name to a recruiter, and I think you need to take a call. I said, I'm not looking for a job. This is not really what I'm looking for. She said, no, 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 I, I think it's interesting. So I took the call, and it was for this foundation job in Detroit, Michigan. Nonprofit in Detroit, I'm so not interested. But I went on the interview, and then I met who's now my current boss and the team, and I came home, and I said to my husband, I said, you're not going to believe this. I just had a job in Detroit, Michigan that I think is a real finance job. So one thing led to another. And so here I am now, 10 years later, on the foundation and endowment asset allocator role. So I think my career is kind of three things. It's actuary, it's sell-side structuring, and now it's investing. And I always say that my job in, when I was on the sell side was create a bunch of widgets. And the more widgets I could create and get out the door, the better. And now my job as an investor is evaluating all those widgets and only picking the best. So I really switched from quantity to quality. And it's it's been amazing. It's just a great intellectual experience to make that shift. So what was the structure of the organization at Kresge when you joined? It's about the same size. We've grown a little bit in headcount. But when I went for the position, we spent a lot of time talking about my background and the fact that they were hiring me specifically for my experience in derivatives. However, the team was structured as generalists from the top to the bottom. And at the time, I guess Rob was the CIO and there were three of us at the senior level and we had a couple analysts who worked for us. And everybody worked on everything. We had to all do manager diligence. We had to all do asset allocation. We were jacks of all trades. So although my background was specific because we do a lot of trading in the portfolio and, and hedging and overlays, they also expected me to learn how to be a manager 
sourcing and, and diligencing. So I said, okay, that sounds great. I'd love to learn that. So I looked at it as a gift. And then I said, who's going to work with me on the trading side? So I taught them a lot about here's what the street is doing when you're facing off against them and on a trade. And then they taught me a lot about here's the questions you need to ask when a manager comes. They show you a pitch book. These are the qualities that we look for. And I've learned a ton from my colleagues who come from the ENF world and have been doing this a lot longer than myself. What were some of those early lessons on both sides that you taught them on trading and then that they taught you about manager selection? <laughs> you never are quite getting the deal that you think you're getting, maybe. <laughs> Certainly on the trading side, I think we were trading with one counterparty. Chances are we weren't getting the best price. So step one was we pretty significantly expanded the number of counterparties that we traded with and did a lot more price discovery on both the way in and the way out. So that took some work, but overall it improved what we were able to do. So that was good. And then... When I first met a manager, I would meet somebody, wow, they were really nice. That was great. I totally understand it. And my colleagues would say, Donna, that was terrible. (laughs) I was like, what? And so that was one data point. And I quickly realized when I got data point number two, I had a line. And when I got data point number three, I had a surface. And then I started collecting more and more data points, and the picture got so much clearer. And when I work with junior people now when they first come in, it's so funny to see their reaction to the very first data point that they collect because they have no idea where in the universe that lands. And then when they start collecting more and they define the boundaries of the universe, that's what I feel like I spent the first, I'm still building my picture of the universe, but building that universe over the first easily two to three years of just constantly meeting more managers, more managers, more managers, hearing their story, having the manager define what their edge is, having the manager define what their strategy is, why they're better than the next person doing the same thing. That was the biggest lesson for me is that one data point is just that one data point. And until you know what the universe looks like, you're not going to make a very good decision. From where you were coming, derivatives, you're probably talking about public markets. How similar or different was it when you were looking at private market investments? Well, what was funny was my last job at the bank was actually covering financial sponsors in the LBO go-go heyday when we were levering deals beyond Mm -hmm. (laughs) all possible limits. And so I would see the deals from the bank side when we were offering credit on the deals and then we were hedging the deals. And so I, I knew what the deals were priced. I spent a lot of time as the deal person. And then it was very interesting to sit across from that manager as a potential investor and hear the story of why they bought that company. So as we would listen to the managers tell their stories and review their performance on the fund, gross of fees and net of fees, the fee discovery was huge, right? Because everybody would ask me, well, what are we paying for that derivative? I said, you're not, there is no fee for the derivative. We're going to buy it at this and the dealer's going to turn around and sell it. We're buying it at X, they're selling it at Y, it's called bid ask, there's not a fee. And that was a big learning, right? And then when I would see what the fees were in the private side and the gross to net spread, that was extremely eye-opening. And the fact that these things were marked quarterly. And I said, but like, what about daily and daily margin? It was very different, very different. How is the team and the structure of the team similar or different over your decade? It has evolved For sure. And I think for the positive, we on the senior team have learned and I appreciate the fact that we've got a good relationship with the junior team and they have given us their feedback as to what could make it better. When I started, I think we had two analysts and the idea was to build on the program similar to the way the investment banks do it, to hire talent out of undergrad, train and teach them, give them support to get their CFA and help them move on to the next stage of their career. We're private foundation. We're generally not growing that fast in assets, which also means we're not growing that fast in headcount. So if you're a bright junior talent who's growing, there's just not that many places to move up, right? Because until somebody retires or leaves or moves on, there's not a, a clear growth trajectory. There's not as much turnover with small numbers. So the idea was give junior talent a really good introduction to the business, a really good training grounds, sit across the table from some of the smartest investors in the world, inform yourself about what you think your skill set and your passion is, and then go back to business school, go back to law school, go back to grad school, use what you learned at Kresge as a generalist 
and go move on. And the idea was at maturity or at we would have one analyst coming in every year and one analyst graduating every year. We'd probably have a pool of three to four-ish analysts, right? And, and that would be great. The junior analysts would learn from the senior analyst and life would go on. What we found out was we were using the pool of analysts, much like the investment banks, like the generalist pool of analysts, and we would kind of tap them on different projects. We weren't getting great quality. It was good, but it could be better. And they said to us, we don't feel like we're adding value. You're asking us to do a bunch of stuff, but we don't really know what we're doing. Like, yeah, we can make a spreadsheet. Yes, we can make a pitch book. Yes, we can do this. We can have a call with a manager. But I feel like I know material that's as wide as an ocean and as deep as a puddle. And so we said, how else could we think about this? And so what we did was we actually changed our analyst model to be specialists. So we stayed as generalists on the senior team, and then we changed our analysts to be asset class specialists. And we made that change probably two and a half, three years ago. And what we have got out of it is amazing. Their understanding, their ownership over the results, the material has been phenomenal. And so we as a senior team still work as generalists. And so if any one of us say might be working on a real estate idea or a venture capital idea, we will work with the real estate analyst or we will work with the venture capital analyst. And oftentimes the analyst is almost leading us, right? Which is great. The benefit of still being generalist is, for example, I just got back from two weeks in China and I met with venture capitalists and credit hedge funds and public equity and the gamut. But I could come back and say, this is what I saw going on in the Chinese economy. This is what I saw was most interesting. And then how does that compare to what I'm seeing in developed markets? And preparing the agenda for those trips is working with each of the analysts and them saying, these are the best people we've found in these different asset classes. And so it's a great balance to come back and make good investment decisions as a team because everybody has something to compare it to. Everybody knows what's going on in the emerging markets on the senior team. And everybody can say, here's a return in an emerging market versus a developed market. And how do those two compare in terms of return opportunity and risk? But then also you can say within the developed world, this is what's going on in public equity versus credit and which is the better thing to focus on right now. And that is intellectually extremely interesting for me and higher quality than it was 10 years ago just from our team structure. These are young people out of college, maybe a few years experience if they've been with you for a little bit. How do you decide when their judgment should influence even so you're going to china for two weeks you only have two weeks there's only a certain number of meetings you can take where does the rubber meet the road and who sets the agenda for that trip it's evolutionary we have found that the first year young talent is with us you're feeding them and bringing them along and then it goes through like really this s curve like it's it's amazing over the short window of time they go from one level to another level and then you can see a change. You can see a change in the way they're writing notes. You can see a change in the ideas they're delivering up. You can see a change in the way they're networking and they're sourcing ideas because they'll travel with us, particularly to annual meetings, right? And we'll introduce them to our peers on the senior teams. They'll network with the junior people on the junior teams. And you'll see this pretty dramatic shift in the ideas they're serving up. And so it's evolutionary. We obviously keep tons of lists and research databases around managers operating in different asset classes. We're all always reading the journal. We're reading institutional investor. We're reading all kinds of sources for ideas. And it becomes two-way. It really does become two-way. Unfortunately, they probably leave us. You know, They're leaving around four or five years when they're getting really good. But it's fun to work with them and I think makes us sharper and better on the senior team. For sure. So let's talk about the dynamic between you and your two peers, John and John, and then Rob, the CIO. Maybe we should just take a manager in your head of sourcing to due diligence to team memo to decision making to the board. Walk me through the process and who's responsible for what all the way through. That too, I would say, has evolved. The way it worked when I showed up 10 years ago, different than the way it worked today. Rob was clearly more hands-on 10 years ago when he had you know, just taken over from Ed when Ed retired. Rob would travel a lot with us, do a lot of initial meetings. At this point, Rob doesn't do really any initial meetings. And even at this point, the senior team is not always doing the initial meetings because we have a full staff of good analysts who do a ton of outbound calling and, and do a lot of filtering. 
So it's probably similar to most of our peers where I always say kissing a lot of frogs to find a prince, right? The analysts start kissing a lot of frogs. <laughs> and they'll usually start it with a phone call, probably have a follow-up phone call, write a note. And, and we review every Monday ideas. And some of it is top-down portfolio construction. We, we're always reminding ourselves that we have a limited amount of time, right? So if, with our limited amount of time, where are we going to focus our efforts? If we're not looking for hedge fund investments, why are we meeting with 20 hedge fund managers? So we're trying to be stewards of our time and spend time meeting with the right people. And then a name might bubble up for a while. Hey, met this interesting manager, got an introduction from so-and-so. Keep them on the watch list. Next time you're in San Francisco, meet with them. Next time you're in New York, meet with them. And so it will evolve like that. And then there will be some sort of catalyst. They're closing. They're not taking any more money. We've got to accelerate the timeline. And so then it becomes a bit more earnest, right? Like, okay, let's make sure we've got the data room. Let's go through deals. Let's Do we know the history of the firm? What have they told us and what are they not telling us, right? Start talking to some of their investors, figure out where the skeletons are. What is the opportunity? It might be an amazing manager that we just don't need the exposure, right? So how do we think about that? How do we think about adding a manager that's doing something that we already have exposure to? Would we fire the other manager that we have? Do we have room for two? How would we fund this? Once the junior person raises it up to the senior person, there's, okay, checks the box on quality and something we would consider. There's more digging in. And then there's, most of the time, it's the three senior people spending time talking to each other and saying, how would you think about this? How does it compare to the other things you've seen? Another member of our team is phenomenally good in healthcare, and he grew up in China. And so he he helps us a lot with our Chinese portfolio, right? And so coalescing to make sure that we're on the same page and saying, do I have the thesis right before we get Rob involved? And then at some point, we know we've got to get Rob on board. And so you have a meeting with him. Too. And before that, when you're digging through the due diligence, either you're doing the analytical work, you're looking at deals for a private fund, or trying to figure out portfolio construction, who's doing that work? Combination of the junior and senior people. We all have different skill sets, right? Some of us on the senior team like stories more. Some of us like numbers more. Same thing on the junior team. Some like a rigorous Excel analysis. Some like to look at a lot of industry research and map the manager onto the industry research. So a variety of approaches. And that is done with us. We'll make sure we highlight it to Rob so he knows what direction we're going. And we use a number of tools, I would say. We've got a great in-house tool that has dramatically improved our ability to look at our portfolio construction. It used to be a kind of a tangled web of Excel spreadsheets. Now it's a great system that allows us to, we could roll up by geographical exposure across all asset classes. We can roll up by sector exposure across all asset classes. We can do a bunch of different things. So I think we've gotten better at portfolio construction. That's usually led, I would say, by the senior team because we're generalists and we can ask those portfolio construction questions where the junior person is much more likely to say, this is the fee structure of this manager. These are their returns. This is the comp set. This is where they're falling out. They're going to get more in the micro details and be very much asset class specialists. And then we're going to see where it fits in the portfolio. How does the decision process work from there? There's always two questions. The first question is yes or no, and how much, <laughs> right? <laughs> so particularly in the private asset classes, the how much is always a question. I think a lot of us have the challenge in our venture portfolios right now with some great paper gains have probably taken a lot of us over our target allocations. And so the question is, are we going to continue to allocate? Look at credit and you say credit is extremely stretched. Why would we be putting a new dollar into credit? So the question is always yes or no. And then how will you fund it? Are we going to use cash to fund it? Are we going to redeem from another manager? What do our liquidity windows look like? We generally have liquidity planning meetings at least quarterly, if not more frequently. Elizabeth Goldsberry, who runs our risk and ops, has got an amazing team who keeps us posted on how tight things are getting. We always modeling what we think our distributions versus our capital calls are going to be. Are we tracking ahead or behind? Is this a source of capital this year or not? We're always projecting what we think our asset allocation is going to be a year from now, two years from now, if things play out the way we want. So while we'd like to say it's science, it's a lot of art. Assuming we get to yes, sizing is the next question. And then the way we think about sizing, and I think our committee has done a great job at pushing us to be more concentrated. We have a really diversified portfolio, really diversified. And the question always is, have you diversified away your alpha? 
and knowing that time is scarce, why aren't you just concentrating more with the managers that you know are delivering the, the most alpha? And so why would you fund a manager in Eastern Europe when you never even traveled to Eastern Europe? Think about the demand on your time. Is that the best return on your time, right? So some like logistical things. And so if we have a manager that we get to yes on because we think it's right for the portfolio, if we can't get a meaningful amount of capital with that manager to make it worth our time and have a significant impact on the portfolio, assuming things go well, why would you do it? And what does that mean? And we always kind of start with 1%. It's got to be a 1% position. For private funds, sometimes that's 1% over a couple funds. But for public funds where you can get out quickly if things aren't going well, you kind of got to start at 1%. Like the concept of just getting in $5 million for an almost $4 billion portfolio, it just doesn't make sense, right? So that's the art piece. So always yes, no, and how much. Yeah. How does the yes, no work? (laughs) A lot of healthy debate. Nobody on our team is shy. And that's actually something we look for in our analysts, too. And typically, our analysts will join us right out of school. So typically, they're joining us in the summertime. And within a month or two, we have an investment committee meeting that we're all preparing for. And we end up going around asking everybody's opinion on something. And we always start with the newest person in the room and make them give an opinion. It's the most uninformed opinion in the room. But getting them to speak and speak before they hear anybody with more experience is really important. And so we will go around the room and everybody will vote yes or no. And why? And you have to speak up. And it is rare that we are uniform on our opinion. And the reasons, sometimes you can predict the reasons just because we all know each other so well. How do some of those break down? Preference for different style. Investing is numbers, but investing is with people. And we all tend to like people that are like ourselves. You kind of know. There is healthy debate before we get to that final decision because you need to get people comfortable with that. And and we all need to listen, I would say, to opinions from each other. I'm going to have biases. I know I'm going to have biases. So I need somebody else to come along with me. We'll often staff two senior people on a diligence project, right? Like we need somebody to be the good cop, somebody to be the bad cop, somebody to be the pro, somebody to be the con, dig through it. So the debate is often around personalities, sometimes around portfolio fit. We generally know what we need and what we don't need, but people like some opportunities better than others. And then there's sometimes a debate too about like, What is the investment opportunity? Like, is it as great as you think it is? Is this really that cheap? And what is the range of potential outcomes? That was probably easier, right? Because there's numbers behind it. You can look at capital flows. You can can discuss purchase price multiples. There's a lot of things you can do on that one. So that one doesn't, at the end of the day, become the debate. It's usually the people aspect. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So let's poke fun at one. So let's just take a long short equity manager that you've had in the portfolio for a while that returns maybe historically have been good and the last couple of years have been eh, like most of the long short equity universe. What is the debate? So I would love to have that discussion with you, but we have no long short in the portfolio. So we'll have to pick another one. All right. I'll have to pick another one. I'll go back. <laughs> so what's the structure of that part of the portfolio? We have our public equity, although some of them can short, they're predominantly long. The hedge fund bucket, which is probably where most people would have their long shorts, we call diversified strategies. And we do our best to keep beta out of that portfolio. So you would assume some of your market neutral long shorts would be in there. 
We have a belief that most market neutral long shorts are not market neutral. So they have been out of that portfolio. So that part of the portfolio is global macros, multi-strats, some insurance-linked strategies. Let's take a long-only value manager. Oh, Imagine we've got lots one of those. those. <laughs> we got lots of those. Um, <laughs> similar. You maybe have money there for a long time. Returns have <laughs> generally been good. Last couple of years, value's been out of favor. Maybe they've underperformed. Last decade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what's the core of the debate you're having today about, you know, take a specific manager in your head. This is a great one. I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to name names of managers nor people on our team. It is a healthy and robust debate. And the question that we've wrestled with this year is, is it our mistake? Did we construct the portfolio wrong? Did we miss the opportunity over the last 10 years? Or is the manager not good at their job? We'll go round and round. And I think fundamentally, none of us have lost our long-term belief that value investing is a good way to invest. We will all admit that in our portfolio, we have a huge bias towards small cap value, and that has not been in favor for 10 years. So there is a piece of that that is on us that we missed. We didn't put large cap growth in the portfolio. We didn't. So you know, everybody knows that's the core of the issue, right? So how do you take that debate and turn it into a decision? We're all people. I would like to say that our team is all good people. And so breaking up with a manager is really hard to do. So because of the way we're structured, we do have the ability to address portfolio construction without having to part ways with a manager. So that's step one is when there is the realization, Maya Koppel, right, that we did it wrong, we can add the exposure that we're seeking through derivatives. And so there's been some of that. But then there's also been, reluctantly, the hardcore look at the numbers. And even if this manager is focused on small or mid-cap value, let's look at the way small and mid-cap value indices have performed and let's measure them against what we've asked them to do. That's where it gets tougher, right? Because sometimes we're invested with pretty concentrated managers. So then you say, it's a manager that I think is really good and this is what they're doing, but maybe they're underperforming even the small cap value index. And then, then you say, well, are they bad? Oh, well, they own six stocks and one stock really performed poorly and they had it really heavily weighted. And that is the tough one. That is really tough. We knew it. We follow the manager. We meet with them a couple times a year, read their quarterly letters, monthly letters, whatever they're sending us. And how much of it is our fault for allowing the portfolio to get constructed this way? And at what point do we need to trim back the exposure? And I would say, you know, some managers we've had to part with, that's difficult. So I imagine in that type of situation, when it is difficult, there's the three senior members of the team, there's Rob, the CIO, you're not all going to have the same opinion. How does the decision get made? Ultimately, Rob has to make the decision. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's his job as a CIO. There is a lot of healthy debate, a lot of opinions. He will always invest the time to do the diligence. He's not going to just sit around the room with us and listen to our opinions. He'll get on a plane. He'll go to the manager. We'll have the meeting. And sometimes all of us end up at the meeting. Sometimes just two people end up at the meeting. There's always a question of what's the alternative? You're just going to pull the plug and what are you going to do? What are you going to replace it with? Just firing somebody isn't always the answer. What are you going to do with it? So he's got to make those hard decisions. You mentioned a couple times at the beginning and then just recently sort of derivatives and overlays. What do you do internally? We don't do single name trades. So a lot of people say, oh, you know, you've got this exposure in your venture book. Aren't you just going to short that? Or No, we don't do any of that. Most of what we do is index-based. We do it for asset allocation purposes. That might be adding risk or taking risk off in either direction. They tend to be rebalancing trades? Mostly rebalancing trades. We're with managers who have long locks or maybe annual liquidity or semi-annual liquidity. We think the manager adds alpha but we don't like the underlying beta. So we will hedge the beta or we have a large emerging markets bet on. We haven't really loved emerging markets in the last year and shorted emerging markets and replaced it with US. And that was just a total return swap on both sides. So that will be an asset allocation or a rebalancing trade. Occasionally, there's interesting ways because of technical mispricings due to flows most of the time to get exposure to a market through the derivatives, to get exposure to usually it's a developed market, usually it's the US or Europe, and you can structure like a long dated trade that 
we know we're going to have this exposure for the next 10 years, and it's actually cheap via the derivatives market relative to a manager. So we'll put the trade on that way. We will occasionally add risk outside of asset allocation. These are in some of the, I would say, hedge fund strategies, right? So like volatility trading, right? The implied versus realized risk premium. Tons and tons of PhD dissertations have been written on this. And so we have like a vol trade on in the book. And we're not going to hire a manager to do that. We're going to put that on sized appropriately in the derivative book. And so that's not asset allocation. That's a risk premium that we think makes sense to harvest. And we'll do that ourselves. And how do you size these various types of positions? So our asset allocation is we have targets, but we also have ranges. So when we're sizing the positions, it's where are we with our funded managers versus where do we want to be in our range? So that's usually it. And then when we're doing the riskier trades or the, I like to call the asset allocation trades, beta trades, and the other one's alpha trades, right? And the benchmark for beta trades is don't do worse than the beta benchmark. And the alpha trades is don't lose money because <laughs> negative alpha is not good, right? So the alpha trades is probably a little bit more work around the sizing. And that's around what could we lose? If it goes wrong, how would you feel about this being a losing position? Those tend to be lower vol trades. So to get to the target return, you kind of have to size them up. But because you're not spending capital to do it, it's okay. And you know, there's a lot of debate around what's your target return for your alpha trades. Well, it might only be 3 or 4%, but it doesn't cost you anything to put it on. So it's kind of a free 3 or 4%. So then you're really concerned about, okay, if all I can really make is 3%, what could I lose? And so that's where the sizing on those trades comes in. We got introduced a while ago, and subsequent to that time, Institutional Investor came out with a ranking of what they called the not-yet-chief investment officers. And per Institutional Investor, you were the number one ranked not-yet-chief investment officer. It's a highly scientific study. It's a highly scientific study. (laughs) Really curious to ask, what was the implication of that for you? Good job. Get back to work. (laughs) (laughs) You know, not meaningful. It was nice to get the recognition. I can't lie. It was great that two of us on the team were on the list. Our team is made up of more than two of us. I learned so much from everybody on our team from the top to the bottom. And I don't think I'd be overstepping to say that Rob learns a lot from everybody on the team too, regardless of whether we're on the list or not. So It was a bit of a high five around the room. It was great for the team to be recognized. And there was some joking, of course. We work in a foundation and that list got circulated and maybe some people said, well, what does this mean? Does this mean people are leaving or are they getting recruited away? And what I appreciate is that Rob is the type of manager where this wasn't news to him. So he didn't freak out. He was pretty excited. He was like, great job. It wasn't uncomfortable for either of the two of us who were on the list because we're pretty open with Rob about our career trajectory. Rob views it as his job to help us with our career trajectory. So those pieces were not uncomfortable in our shop, which was great. Maybe at the margin, a number of our managers picked up the art or saw the headline and they were like, wow, it's really great to be partnered with Kresge with two people on that list. He's got a solid team. And I hope they felt that way before that list came out, but that too was nice. And I think that the committee probably also always thought that the whole team was good. But for when the committee saw something like that in print from a high quality organization like Institutional Investor, I think the the committee probably also felt pride in knowing that they're working with a team that has a good leader, that has good members. Overall, positive. And there's an implication of what you're saying. I can't imagine that Every organization has that type of dialogue between the senior team members and the chief investment officer. So I think it's, yes, unique. Were there any stories you heard that weren't as positive outside your organization? <laughs> I didn't hear any direct stories. Nobody's come to me and said that was the most awkward day. But I do know that there are people who don't have that same kind of dialogue with their CIO. And in a way, I mean, that list was admission that pretty much everybody on that list was talking to a recruiter because I believe that list was mostly put together by the recruiters. And so the recruiter probably didn't nominate you if they hadn't had at least one conversation with you. (laughs) So that was clearly recognition that everybody on that list had been talking to recruiters. So if your boss was not aware of that, that could have been an uncomfortable day. And my guess is there were some uncomfortable days. I don't know specifically. (laughs) That would be my guess. I'd bet on it. (laughs) Yeah. So let's project forward and let's just assume that for whatever reason, you're the chief investment officer somewhere. From what you see today, what are the differences in how you spend your time today from, say, how Rob spends his time? That is something that I think about all the time. And again, over the 10 years, it's evolved. 
when I saw what Rob was doing when I first joined, it looked a lot like my job today. When I see what he's doing now, it looks very different. We've all gone through growth as he's gotten pulled into more and more things at the foundation and board seats and things that he's doing outside his day job of being the chief investment officer for and investing our endowment. He's had to learn to trust his team to make decisions. He still has to sign the final paper, but he's had to learn to trust us and give us decision-making authority. We have had to learn to step up and say, Rob, this is my recommendation and this is why. It used to be more of a dialogue of, here are my thoughts. Here's why I would. Here's why I wouldn't. Make the call. Now it's, I recommend this and these are the three things why. Let me know if you disagree. And that's been growth on both sides. Growth for him to accept that kind of recommendation, growth from us to feel confident doing that. And our team needs to work together and earn each other's trust. I can't go recommend something that I know that any of my other colleagues would not agree with. So we all have to, we have to earn each other's trust and kind of collectively, because the first thing Rob's going to say is, does John agree? Does John agree? Does Sean agree? And if I haven't had those conversations, that reflects badly on me. So that's been number one growth. And so now when I look at what Rob is doing, because I love what I do. I love investing. I love the opportunity to look globally and say, I have a dollar of capital. Where should it go? That is phenomenally interesting. And I, I will tell people all the time, I've got the best job ever. So I think about that when I think, when I move to being a CIO, or if I have the opportunity to move to being a CIO, that's not going to be my primary job. Managing boards, managing politics in an organization, managing a team, managing team development, staff development, making the hard decisions. Like there's there's going to be a lot of like pulls. Speak on this panel, go to this conference, speak up about whatever the hot topic issue is in our world today. And it's going to probably like write a policy on this and do that, right? Like it's not going to be a lot of investing. It's not going to be source and diligence managers. It's not going to be run the spreadsheet, run the regression, figure out where there's spurious correlation. It's not going to be any of that stuff that I think is fun. And so I think about that and do I want it or don't I? Part of me is like, why couldn't we just go on forever in this like Shangri-La that we have? But while I enjoy what I'm doing now, I also feel like I want to make room for the people that I've mentored and I've trained. And so there's no growth for them if I also don't grow. And I think that in all of my diligence of managers and diligence and investment opportunities, I'm learning skill sets that will help me be a better business leader. If I'm sitting here interviewing a GP and saying, why did you invest in that company and how did you do an organizational turnaround? In a way, I'm collecting little data pieces that will inform me when I'm the GP of a fund and thinking about how am I going to drive value creation in this fund? And I think that's interesting. It's a step. It's different, but I think exciting. And hopefully I'll have an opportunity to do it. What have been the biggest challenges you've faced the last couple of years? Emerging markets have been a tough place to be. If we're talking investing, <laughs> you know, there's years where you look smart for overweighting emerging markets. There's years you look less smart. We're in a less smart time frame. We've been in a decent period for liquidity. I think when I first started, managing liquidity was like a daily and weekly thing. I mean, that was all we really looked at. Finding new opportunities. I think we've kissed more frogs and said no to more things in the past two years. That's, it's not demoralizing. It's just hard. Finding something differentiated where you feel so compelled that the price and the risk return opportunity is interesting. I've heard that story before. I've met 10 other managers that look just like that. So the volatility that we've had recently, this year, past couple months, is actually a, a bit exciting. We're finally going to see some differentiation. We're going to see some shakeout of people who, you know, rode the wave up for the past 10 years. There's going to be shakeout. There will be pain, right? There will be losses in places. But I think, I think it will be a more interesting investment period going forward. Other challenges, you know, I think we're constantly driving to – improve our operating metrics. We're always thinking about how can we travel better, smarter, cheaper, do more, right? Live within a budget. We're not experiencing massive growth in the portfolio. We also can't expect to grow our operating budget by a massive amount. So it's like, okay, how are we going to do more than we did last year on the same or less budget? So that's a little bit of a challenge, I guess. Thanks to Airbnb, it's not that challenging, I guess. <laughs> what are the hot buttons of either discussion or investment areas on your team? What to do about paper gains and venture? is a hot button. I wouldn't say that there's differing opinions. I mean, we all see these paper gains and we know it, it needs to come down. Is there anything you can do? I mean, I remember the last time that happened, a lot of these things were public and the venture capital firms held them. Mm -hmm. And so you could go out 
short the stocks and hedge. Now they're still in private hands. Yeah, there's a lot less. You know, we're doing it a bit just with our index hedges. We know regionally where our exposure is. So you can do some of the regional hedging. You can do a little bit of sector hedging. So you can do a little bit of that. It's imperfect. Timing is not perfect. Cash flows are never going to match up. And then you have to balance that with if we just sit here and don't contribute anything, you don't commit to any new venture funds for the next 10 years, you're going to have massive vintage year risk. So going zero for the next 10 years is also not the right answer. Is that a hot button? I think everybody's in agreement on what that is. The value bias is probably a bigger hot button. We got it wrong for the last 10 years. Is abandoning ship today the right idea? Or are we just at the cusp of when it's going to actually start working? Hedge fund returns have been a bit disappointing. That one I don't think is a huge hot button for us because we've been ahead of the benchmarks, although low on an absolute number. It's not great, but it's not super painful. I think everybody's in agreement on where we are in the credit cycle. And potentially the role emerging markets plays long term, right? Are are they going to be the growth driver that we all thought they were going to be? What is the right amount to have allocated to emerging long term? It's something that we debate a lot. I mean, we're we're overweight emerging. That's not a secret. All of our peers know that. I think a lot of our peers have a, a significant overweight. Now the question is, is it too much of an overweight? And what are the bumps going to be between? I think if you go to sleep today and wake up in 10 years, you'll be up and to the right. What does the road there look like is a different question. And at your size, so call it $4 billion, how do you think about fees in some of the more expensive areas? We did an analysis two years ago, I want to say, where our hedge fund analyst was tasked with pull all the financial documents of every one of our hedge funds and figure out what fees we paid. And we're going to go after the people that we paid the highest fees to. And then it turned out that the person we paid the highest fees to was also our highest net return. They said, well, that was an interesting exercise, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Armed with that information, we could at least have a conversation with the manager to say, listen, explain to me where all these fees are going and is this the right amount? And so having the knowledge is helpful to have the conversation. And that's where it's got to start. We're not big enough to drive a fee discussion, but we do engage in conversation. And we have seen some more flexibility, right? Managers are offering a couple different fee structures. You can do the one or 30. We've got one that's a zero and 30 that's kind of unique. We've got ones that are over a benchmark versus over an absolute, right? And so the fact that managers, while they might not always be reducing fees, they have seemed to offer some different alternatives to allow investors to choose the fee structure that we think philosophically fits best with us. On the private side, I think a lot of people have been using co-investments to work down the gross to net spread. I think maybe that's moderately successful across the universe. (laughs) Said with some skepticism on your face. (laughs) But you guys haven't done that. We have used co-investments, and I'll put us in the moderately successful. It's certainly not the, hey, we're going to see gross to net shrink by half. We're not big enough to do it that way. I think that works for some of the big funds that are staffed that way, and that's the smart thing to do for somebody at our size. Questionable. All right, Donna, let's turn to some closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I don't think this will be a surprise to anybody who knows me well. I am a huge skier. Wintertime is my favorite time of year. I was just emailing with somebody earlier today trying to convince them to come on a ski trip with me. <laughs> if uh, money were no object, I would be a ski bum, hands down. <laughs> What's your favorite spot? Jackson Hole is probably my favorite. I don't get to go there that often. Not everybody likes to ski the same way I do. Everywhere out west. (laughs) Everywhere that's not Michigan ice. How about that? (laughs) Uh, I'd buy that. What's your biggest pet peeve? Hopefully I haven't used too many today. Buzzwords. Buzzword bingo. Management buzzword bingo. When you're sitting across from a manager and they're trying to explain their very fancy strategy using all these buzzwords. that mean nothing. (laughs) It's it's like, no. Let's talk about this. I'm going to give you a dollar. You're going to turn it into more than a dollar. And you need to tell me how you're going to do that. And when you're going to give me more than a dollar back and what the range of potential outcomes are on that dollar and leave all the buzzwords off the table. And then we can have a conversation. (laughs) (laughs) What reading do you almost never miss? This is a tough one because I think that, well, thanks to digital media, there's so much reading, right? So I I try to read all the standards daily, Bridgewater and the Journal and New York Times and all that good stuff. There's one thing that I read that takes about – five seconds, and I try not to miss it daily. 
When you log into Bloomberg, there is a quote on the first page. And that quote is sometimes so spot on that it, it may or may not have anything to do with investing, but it sets the tone for the day. I mean, that's what I do. I come in, I hang up my coat, I turn on my computer, and I log into Bloomberg, and I look at the futures. And before I look at the futures, I read that quote, and sometimes it makes me laugh. Sometimes it's like a harsh reality of what the world is today. But I love that quote. And occasionally they get written down on a piece of paper and stuck up on my bulletin board. So maybe a little different than some others. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Well, my dad was born during the Depression. My mom was born just after. Both of my grandfathers were trades people, didn't have college education, worked really hard. None of them had credit cards. Everything was paid for for cash. So there was like this, you work hard, you save, you save, you save. And my dad used to always say to me, if something sounds too good to be true, probably is. And I probably didn't really embrace that until I moved to the investor side of the world. Over the last 10 years, I think about that all the time as I'm listening to somebody pitch me an idea. I'm like, there's no free lunch. There's no free money. Like, that sounds too good to be true. Let's figure out why. So he, he probably doesn't even know that I still, I think about that, but he used to always say that. Sounds too good to be true. <laughs> All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think I might still be trying to learn this, but I'm at least aware that I should know it. I wish that I would have started listening to my elders earlier in life. And this might be now as, like, as a parent and trying to give advice to my kids. Good luck with that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right. I look back now and I think, well, I think that's what my parents said to me. It turned out to be true. Why didn't I listen? And so now I have this awareness that, oh my gosh, there are so many people who have had so many more life experiences than me that I can learn from them. I need to be learning from them. And they'll tell me, you know, this is what I did in a situation that I had. And I'm like, okay, I should listen to that. But here's all the reasons why this time is different. <laughs> so, so I would say I'm still learning it. But listening to people with more experience than you is probably a good idea. Yeah. Great. Donna, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you so much. It was great to have a chat. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 